how do we get in? The adventure's great foil. A company of dwarves sits around a candlelit table in a hole in the ground where there lived a hobbit. Discussions have been exciting, thrilling even, as they contemplate the journey that's laid out before them. They are going to retake their homeland, Erebor, the Lonely Mountain. Yet they come to a problem. You see, the mountain is sealed. They used to live inside of it for you um, novices. <laughs> it's sealed. They can't get into it. And so the question, how do we get in, sucks almost all of the air out of the room. Until Gandalf, again, for the less informed among you, he's a wizard, uh, Gandalf produces a key that will unlock an invisible door that will allow them access into the mountain. Now, I will leave it to you to travel with Bilbo throughout the lands of Middle-earth and enjoy the rest of the story, but I bring this particular scene to mind this morning to emphasize this. You see, the, the whole endeavor turned on the fulcrum of the key. It wasn't their ability to defeat a fire-breathing dragon or tra traverse over treacherous terrain. It wasn't even about mending frayed relationships. The whole adventure rested upon their ability to get in. We come to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We come not to Erebor, but to the Sermon on the Mount. And a very similar question pervades the whole sermon. How do we get in? How do we get in to the kingdom of heaven? Remember from last week, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. You have that summary statement in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 4, where Matthew's following that traditional pattern. He's going to tell us what he's going to tell us. He's going to tell it to us, and then he's going to tell us what he told us. And so he looked at, at the bookends there in, in chapter 9, and, and it reads almost verbatim as those, that paragraph at the end of chapter 4. You can see it in verse 35, if you're following along there. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. We pointed out that these function like bookends, like a, a literary sandwich, the fancy word for which is an inclusio. It means this hangs together as a unit. And that unit in Matthew, from chapter 4, four verse 23 to chapter 9, at the end of it, hangs together as to make this point. Jesus is a king who has real authority. We see his authority in his work, healings, chapters 8 and 9, and in his words, chapters 5 through 7. And so we come to the introduction of that famous Sermon on the Mount this morning, and the Beatitudes. But I don't want to just jump there right away, because I think we can, we can get it twisted and make really 
big interpretive errors if we just jump right in and hermetically seal the Beatitudes off from the rest of Matthew's gospel. What we, we need to recognize is that these are connected to the sermon as a whole. And so two things I want you to try and remember. The Sermon on the Mount in general is aimed at driving us to Jesus. The teachings of Jesus here enable us to recognize that we do not have the spiritual resources within ourselves to put any of the sermon's precepts into practice. We cannot fulfill God's standards ourselves. Rather, we must come to the king and rely on his power. That's the first thing. And the second thing I want you to recognize is that these beatitudes in particular describe characteristics of kingdom citizens. And so you're going to see these two things play together, right? So the first is we can't get into the kingdom on our own. That's pretty plain. You look at the Beatitudes, you're told you're salt and light, and then right there in verses 17 through 20, verse 20 specifically, Jesus says to all those who are listening, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the Pharisees are perceived by everyone at this point in history as good guys. They are the Michael Jordan of righteousness. And so, it would be as if someone were saying to you, unless you're better than Jordan at basketball, you're not getting in. That's not going to do it for you. You can look down, and, and Jesus eventually just lays it all on the line. In verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The sermon calls us to a level of righteousness to which we could never rise on our own. And it gives us that question in our mind. How then do we enter the kingdom of heaven? And again, it drives us to Jesus by trusting in the king. And then secondarily, as we have said, it sets before us standards towards which we are to strive. And so the, the Beatitudes themselves here in the first uh, 10 verses, but 11 and 12 are so joined to 10, we're going to treat them all together. Uh, there are eight Beatitudes, and these give us sort of a portrait of what a citizen of God's kingdom should look like. Oh, the shape of a Christian, if you will. And one more thing we have to point out before we can actually uh, get into walking through these this morning is this. Uh, remember, big literary sandwich, big inclusio, 423 to, to 935. Well, there's another one right here in the Beatitudes, so we understand that they hang together. So, so you'll notice in verse, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you'll look at verse 10, which is then explained further in 11 and 12. But verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, these are two uh, present tense verbs. They have the kingdom, if you'll think back to last week, already. And if you look in between the theirs is the kingdom of heaven, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, at the other Beatitudes, you'll recognize that they are cast in the future tense. 
with me? And so what we have in this literary sandwich is what we've got. We've got future promises flanked by present realities. And what Matthew wants us to understand, and we'll it will become clear as we move through his gospel, is that the kingdom has come with the king. It's already broken into history. And it's not all the way here yet. The kingdom is already and not yet. It's here, but it's still on its way. And so with that in mind, we will turn our attention to this description of discipleship, this description of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the main idea, what I want you to walk away contemplating this morning is this, kingdom citizens are dependent on the king and devoted to the king. And you'll notice that's reflected in your outline, and it's because we have to split the eight beatitudes into two parts of four. There are four beatitudes that demonstrate our dependence on God, and there are four that demonstrate our devotion to God. One is about who we are. The second is about well, what we do in light of what Christ has done. Really, the key is verse 6, where those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied, they'll be filled, and then after they are filled, the idea is they go out and they're able to be merciful, peacemakers, and, and all the rest. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, though. So I'm going to exhort you this morning to live as citizens of the kingdom now and look forward to the consummation of the kingdom then. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for how it, challenge, how it challenges us and shapes us, encourages us, how it is water to us, in a dry land, how it is food to us in places of spiritual famine. We thank you that by your word you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that your people are made by your word as your world was made by your word. Your word has power and we pray that we would be changed by that power this morning as it is proclaimed. We ask that you would give us clean hands and pure hearts. We pray that you would help us to hear from you by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus set up shop not in NYC, but in Galilee, right? Not in Jerusalem, but in Nellie's Ford. He's gone about teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And here is the content of that teaching. Seeing the crowds, verse 1, he went up on the mountain. And right away, uh, Matthew's picking up on those mosaic themes. The last time I'm going to bring this to your attention, right? Jesus' life was threatened as a baby. He comes out of Egypt. He's tempted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness after passing through water. And now he's on a mountain, more of a hillside, but on a mountain giving God's word to God's people. He is being presented by Matthew as a new sort of Moses. Matthew has spent the first four chapters establishing that Jesus has the credentials of a king, and now he's showing us that Jesus has the power of a king. He teaches with the authority of the king, the authority of God. He's on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples 
came to him. That might sound strange to you because you all are sitting and I am, am standing. Uh, this was normal in the first century. The teacher usually sat. Everybody else uh, usually stood, typically because the teacher was a little on up there in years. Uh, so if, I guess if you want to be more, more biblical, I don't know if that's the right word, but more like the first century, somebody can get me a chair and, and you all can stand. Otherwise, we'll just proceed. Uh, Matthew sits down. He opens his mouth and he begins teaching. And he says, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does this mean? I think sometimes we can get hung up on this word, blessed. We could also be translated happy, but the way we conceive of happiness is sort of fleeting, I think, evacuated of some of the meaning that is intended to be there. Kevin DeYoung suggested we, we translate it as congratulations. Congratulations are in order. So it was like, congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The idea that's wrapped up in these is, here is what you have, here's what you're given, and here's what you need to do. Congratulations. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But what does that mean, to be poor in spirit? I mean, it doesn't even sound good. I mean, we, we, I think the first century audience probably would have expected, blessed are the prosperous, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They know they're blessed by God because they're prosperous. Theirs is the kingdom. I think maybe in our culture, uh, we might better like to hear Jesus say something along the lines of, blessed are those who believe in themselves. Theirs is the kingdom. They all take hold of what they want. I mean, that lands a little better on our ears than blessed are the poor in spirit. Seems interesting. I have uh, taken up cycling, and it's really not cycling, it's more spinning, but I just, it's too humiliating to say that. Uh, but it's basically a digital spin class, and, and the instructors always, uh, during the course of a, of a bike ride, will always say some silly things, I think, that really capture the spirit of our age. Let me, I, I wrote some of them down. Here, here you go. You just have to believe in yourself. Feel powerful. Feel good. Look good. Do better. Inhale confidence. Exhale doubt. Step into your own power. I can. I am. I will. I do. We would like, blessed are those who step into their own power, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right. Jesus couldn't be any more countercultural, could he? he? He doesn't say, blessed are those who believe in themselves, blessed are those who look good, blessed are those who step into their power, but, but blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to recognize your spiritual powerlessness. It's to be spiritually bankrupt. One commentator said, it is a humility that leads God's people to depend wholly on him. Martin Lloyd-Jones described it as an awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. 
It means that when I come to God looking for salvation, when I come to inherit the kingdom of heaven, how do I get in? Well, it's by coming to the, the king with absolutely nothing to offer. Saying, I, I just need your grace and your mercy. I'm not coming and saying, oh, here are some good things I've done along the way. I've attended church sometimes. and I'll help out at the food bank. No, no, no. It, it's, it's like the old hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We come to Christ like that. He, he delights to give to us the kingdom. He gives us citizenship. There are two really good examples of poverty of spirit in the New Testament. Uh, one comes to us in, in Luke 18. You'll remember uh, the parable. It's a short one of the publican and the Pharisee. The publican is a tax collector. Not a good dude in the first century. But the Pharisee stands up and he, he prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, Thank you that I am awesome. Thank you that I'm not like all these other guys. They do all these bad things. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over there. Whew, it's good. Good to be me. I'm righteous. And then you get the prayer of the publican who, who, who beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the publican who goes away made right with God. That's poverty of spirit. Second example, maybe the most famous parable of Jesus, is that parable of the prodigal sons. Remember, the, the younger son wishes his father dead by asking for the inheritance early. He's like, I know you haven't died yet, but can I have half of everything you own as if you were already dead? His father, he, he gives it to him, and he goes off, he takes a weekend in, in Vegas, uh, squanders all of it. He, he finds a job, and basically he's feeding pigs, and he's not making any money. He can't get by. He realizes that the pigs are eating better than he is. And, and so he says to himself, I should go back to my father's land. His hired servants eat better than I do. I'll, I will go home, I'll confess my sin, I'll ask him not to take me back as a son, but, but as a slave. So uh, he makes his way home, he comes up across the horizon, uh, the father sees him, he, he runs to him, and before he can even confess his poverty of spirit and his dependence on the father, his father is planting kisses on his cheek, calling for the family robe to be put on his back, he's slipping a ring on his finger. He's commanding that the fattened calf be slaughtered, putting shoes on his feet because he is ready to celebrate. His son, who was once dead, is now alive. That which is lost is found. Poverty of spirit. When we come to God like this, confessing our sins, we, we don't have anything. We're not worthy to be called your sons, not worthy to even be slaves. Take us. The Father wraps us in his arms and says, no, 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 you are my son. You are my daughter. King Jesus says, welcome to the kingdom. The older brother also gives us the, the opposite of poverty of spirit, does he not? much like the Pharisee and the publican and the Pharisee, he feels entitled to everything that his father has. And so he stays outside, angry at the grace 
of his father. He thinks he deserves what his brother has. Oh, friends, the second that we think we deserve the grace and mercy of God, well, it is that point we have abandoned poverty of spirit in favor of proudness of spirit. Because then we need to repent afresh. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we have occasion for that much more often than not. This is an oily beatitude. But once we feel like we have our hands on this great humility, this poverty of spirit, it just slips out. Praise God he is forgiving. Praise God we are united to Christ. We are his. The kingdom is ours. And one day when the kingdom comes in its fullness, as we look forward to that day, we won't ever slip out of poverty of spirit again. Citizens of the kingdom are poor in spirit. And they're mournful. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Does this mean that, that Christians should be the saddest lot that you ever meet? You know, like uh, Eeyore is an example of Christian piety. Unfortunately for the cynical among us, no. Now, this isn't a call to sadness over whatever and however. It's not a blessing on just general mopiness. Rather, it is a call for us to mourn our sin, the sin that is in the world. When's the last time you mourned over your sin? When's the last time you really mourned over, over the sins in the world. Those who are in Christ, poor in spirit, they recognize they have nothing to bring to God, and they recognize the weight of their sins, the weight of sin in the world. Citizens of the kingdom mourn over it. And they will be comforted. Those who mourn their sin, who confess their sins to Christ now, are forgiven now, comforted now, and will be comforted when the kingdom comes in its fullness, finally, once for all. Blessed are those who mourn. I think this is an occasion to ask yourself, you know, have I become hardened not only to sin in the world, just gotten used to it, it's normal, but also to sin in myself and to mourn our sin and look to the blessing of comfort both now and when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Citizens of the kingdom are dependent on the grace of God and their poverty of spirit and for his comfort as he forgives their sin. And in light of this, citizens of the kingdom are also meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the whole earth. 
is an expansion of Psalm 37, where the meek inherit the land. Jesus saying the meek will inherit the whole earth. That's what's before them in the future. Blessed are the meek. What, what is meekness? I'm sure you've heard. Uh, meekness is not weakness. It is a gentleness and a patience. Submission to God. Meekness is a getting over yourself and over a desire to be impressive to anyone. Maybe to stick with the Lord of the Rings theme, a hobbit would be an example of someone who's meek. But if we want to be biblical about it, Moses. Moses, oddly enough, records about himself that he is the meekest man who ever lived. And that comes to us in Numbers 12, and a really interesting story. Miriam and Aaron are upset that Moses has married a Cushite, and so they begin to question him and rebel against his authority. Moses then pens, Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. And then we have God entering the picture. He summons Moses and Miriam and Aaron before himself, and he's angry. And so he strikes Miriam with leprosy. Moses immediately prays that the Lord would heal Miriam, and he does, but still she'll have to remain outside of the camp for seven days. Here's what I'm getting at. I think meekness at its heart is a refusal to self-justify. It allows God to do the defending. It recognizes, I am a sinner. Right? It doesn't stand up for itself immediately. So, so you might think of me, like somebody might, of you might think, man, you are a really sinful person. And if I'm honest, I'm going to go, you have no idea how sinful I am. This is what meekness does. It's a um, self-awareness of one's sinful state. One of the probing questions I found helpful this week was this. If someone says to you, you are a wicked sinner, do you immediately want to rise to your own defense? Like it's one thing generally to say to one another and to say to the Lord, I, I am a sinner, I need forgiveness. It's, it's harder when someone else is like, you are a sinner, right? Think of uh, Any time my spouse begins to correct me, I begin to go, wait a minute, no, no, he got me, he's right. Are you meek? The meek depend on God, on Christ to justify them, not themselves. Those citizens of God's kingdom, well, they're dependent folk, they're poor in spirit, they're mourners, they need to be comforted, they're meek, and they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, that is, filled. So hunger and thirst for righteousness, what does this mean? Think of a desire, a natural desire 
to see the world and oneself conformed to the will of God. Just think about it. Imagine that, that you were going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And because you are a great logistician, you, you have it planned out to a T. And so you, you know there are large stretches where there won't be any food or water. And so you get all of your stuff together, you put your, your food stores in a little cache, and you hide it off the trail somewhere. And then one day, you're, you're on your journey, you get to your cache, you, you open it up, and a thief has come. All your stuff is gone. And you've got half a canteen of water and some goldfish and raisins. And you don't even like raisins. And three days before you're going to be able to get food and water again. Imagine on that third day what you would be like. In your head, you would be thinking about food and water. I need it. I want it. Citizens of the kingdom are to be those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Friends, hunger and thirst are signs of life. If, if you think that you are a Christian and you do not hunger and thirst for righteousness, you need to consider whether or not you are stillborn. Where there is no hunger or thirst, there is no life. Citizens, of the kingdom of God, long for righteousness. That they're filled with the justifying righteousness of Christ declared right with God, and they live in such a way as to reflect that righteousness. In their homes and in their communities, do you, do you hunger and thirst for the will of God to be present in the world? We see those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. We are satisfied in this life, but there is a deeper satisfaction that will come when the kingdom comes in its fullness. But I do think in the Beatitudes, we're, we're to see a turn here from these Beatitudes of dependence, right? Citizens in the kingdom are poor, they're mourning, they're meek, they're hungry and thirsty. They're entirely dependent on the king towards the citizens serving the king in devotion. And so we come to verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We talked about this a little bit this morning. This is not a call to works salvation, right? You only receive the mercy of God if you are merciful with others, right? You don't earn it that way. Rather, we as God's people are merciful to others because we ourselves have received mercy. The one who is forgiven much loves much. And evidence that you are a citizen in the kingdom of God comes in the form of your willingness to be merciful. 
both in terms of reconciling relationships and in terms of coming to meet the needs of those who are in need. Be merciful, like the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. We're to seek reconciliation with one another. As Jesus explains in Matthew 18, when a brother or sister sins against you, go to them. Be reconciled. Be forgiving. The Christian forgives because he needs forgiven, and he forgives because he knows that he needs forgiveness also. I think we get a great picture in, in Matthew 18 of the horrific hypocrisy of someone who has received mercy from God not extending it to somebody else. Remember, Jesus has just laid out that whole process of church discipline. And unlike us, most of us go, well, well what, what do we do when people don't repent? That's really hard to remove someone from our fellowship. Peter has a different question. He goes, this looks like it's going to work a good bit. What do we do when people repent? It's like, how many times do I need to forgive them, Jesus? Seven? And Jesus says, not seven, but 70 times seven. And what Jesus is saying is, you need to forgive them in perpetuity. As many times as they come to you repenting of sin, you need to be willing to extend mercy and forgive. And then he launches into a parable. And he says, the kingdom of heaven has become like this. He tells a story of a king settling accounts with his bondservants. I'm going to call the first guy a bondservant and the second guy slave so we don't confuse them. The bondservant comes to him and he owes an astronomical amount of money. We're talking Jeff Bezos level money. And the, the king says, you are going to be sold. Your family is going to be sold. All of your stuff is going to be sold because you can't pay your debt. And the bondservant falls down before the king and he, he says, I beg you, I just, I just need more time. And the king pities him and has mercy on him. He forgives the debt entirely. Then the bondservant comes to another slave of the king who owes him not an insignificant amount of money, but not nearly as much as he owed. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's, it's a couple months of wages, if I remember correctly. And he says, where's my money? Chokes him, slaps him. And slave says, he falls down before him, he begs him, please, just give me more time so I can pay. And the bondservant, who had just received mercy, says no. He throws the slave into prison. Word gets to the king, and he is incensed. We read in verse 32 of Matthew 18, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave all of your debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. That word for jailers can also be translated torturers, just so you know. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Those who receive mercy extend mercy because they know they themselves need mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they 
shall receive mercy. Are you merciful? Citizens of the kingdom are full of mercy. And they are pure in heart. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Of course, we see Christ in a way now. But one day we will see him in his fullness. But what does this mean to be pure in heart? I think it's pretty simple, right? So when something is pure, it's not mixed up with something else. It's pure. Remember when the Bible speaks of the heart, it speaks of the center of the person, includes our reasoning abilities along with our emotions and our will. And so the idea here is the submission of the whole person to the will of God. There is a wholehearted delight in who God is. Only Christ can give such a heart. And of course, we, we recognize that we work towards this end in this life. Right? 1 John 3.3 says, Everyone who hopes in him, that's Jesus, purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. See, what John's getting at there is, is we're not without sin, but it is our practice to pursue righteousness, to pursue the purity. So, wonder, are we singularly devoted to our King? Where does your mind go when you don't have to think about anything else? What gives you the deepest satisfaction in life? A team's victory in the NCAA tournament? Friends, there is something far better. Seeing God. Devotion to God. There's a deeper satisfaction in Christ. Those citizens who are dependent on God, are devoted to Him. They extend mercy to others. They follow with their whole lives. And they seek to make peace. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who follow Christ aim to make peace. And the peace that we make with others is founded on the peace that we have with God. Because Christ has made peace between man and God, men can be reconciled to one another. It is by the blood of Jesus shed for sins on the cross that those who repent and trust in him are forgiven and reconciled to God, brought into the family of God, called members of his own household. And it's out of that forgiveness and our reconciliation with God that we pursue reconciliation with one another. It is in Christ that even the most bitter of enemies can find friendship. Jew and Gentile are made one new man in Christ. They have access to God through one spirit. They are one temple being built together. They are fellow citizens, siblings, and stones. So we pursue peacemaking. We try to forgive one another when we repent. We try to make 
peace out in our community. I do think primarily how we are called to be peacemakers here is through the proclamation of the gospel. By proclaiming that there is peace between God and man. Isaiah 52, verse 7, which Paul will later quote in Romans, says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. We want to make peace in the world. We take them the good news of Christ crucified so that the world that is at war with God might enjoy peace with Him. Blessed are those who share their faith. I also want to point out here that the peace that we are called to make is not a peace at any and every expense. I think there is an unfortunate pattern in much of the church today to compromise with sin in order to win the approval of the world and to then call it peace. And so, um, sexual revolution is affirmed. We're at peace. We're just trying to live at peace with everyone. First order doctrines are denied. We just want to be at peace. We want to say that we're all in this together. But friends, God has no interest in a squishy ecumenicalism. God has no interest in his kingdom mixing with the world. He wants his people to have pure hearts. Friends, unity at the expense of truth is fraudulent. As Adrian Rogers once said, it is better to be divided by truth than united in error. Yes, we are to be peacemakers, but we are to make peace on God's terms, not on the world's. Must hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Still, that in mind, I I think about making peace in my own life and in my own house, and I wonder how good I am at it. How good are you at it? I mean, would somebody describe you, I always bring this question to my kids, Are you being a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Oftentimes, more honest among my children will say, troublemaker. What about you? Think of James chapter 1 and verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. How often am I willing to take up arms in anger before I ever consider making peace? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who share their faith. For they shall be called sons of God. Here's that already not yet tension again. We are in Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. But we will also, one day on that day, be called sons of God. Our sonship will be experienced in in an even fuller sense. But I also want to point out here, sons of God, the phrase here is not ontological, 
but functional. What I mean by that is that it is a description of what that type of person is. That wasn't helpful. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, like father, like son? Right? You say to somebody, oh, they're like their daddy. Like father, like son. Apple didn't fall far from the tree. This is what Paul was saying here, Paul. This is what Matthew is saying here. Saying, when we make peace, we are like our father. They'll be called sons of God because God is the great peacemaker. Sort of like uh, you describe someone's character when you call them son of a gun or son of whatever. Right? In Jewish thought, son often bears the meaning partaker of the character of. Right? So if somebody calls you a son of a dog, it's not an aspersion on your parents, but on you. They're saying you are acting like a dog. And so likewise, those who make peace act like their heavenly father. They will be called sons of God. Citizens of the kingdom are devoted to God, devoted to the God upon whom they are dependent. They're merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. They will be persecuted. Look with me at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Different kinds of persecution here. It's spelled out for us in verse 11. Lies, hatred, falsehoods, slander is detailed as persecution. This is what we are more likely to encounter in our country. But around the world, many of our brothers and sisters endure not just this, but also bodily harm. Such would be the case for the disciples. I mean, can, can you imagine, I mean, we don't have the 12 all together yet, but can you imagine those few that Jesus has called even now, listening to him deliver this message? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Imagine Jesus sort of teaching this and turning his eyes on those who are following him. You will be persecuted. Friends, the disciples would see these very words come to life. They, they would see Christ stricken, smitten, and afflicted. They would see the crown pressed upon his head. They would see the blood flow down his face. They would see him spat upon and suspended on the tree of curse. They would see him die. Who then would follow a king who was dead? We remember the disciples all meet terrible ends. They are beheaded, 